0: All right, let's let's uh, let's find our place. And, you know, before, Mark, before you start the recording, let me say something else. Um, I probably should have mentioned this earlier. All right, let's go. We are starting a new mini-series uh, with selected scriptures coming through the book of Joshua, mostly just for the month of April. And uh, what we've done is we have finished a couple of months' worth of really focusing in on the human sinful nature of man that we have and, and God's judgment of sin. And in this last week's Bible conference, we saw very, very clearly our necessary response to that truth. And that would just be true biblical godly repentance. And it's been a hard subject. It has. It's not been easy, uh, but it has been very necessary. And it has been, for so many of us, very cleansing, and if that's the case for you, then you probably have come out of that last couple of months with a new view of God, uh, maybe a new view of ourselves, maybe of our lives going forward. And as a result, we have seen a lot of people make radical decisions to follow the Lord in new and exciting ways that maybe the, the, the path had kind of gotten cobwebs and covered over with leaves and you kind of lost your way a little bit over time, I don't know, but it's time now to move on. It's time now to live in victory and not live in defeat. And that's why I wanted for us to look through this book and just a few passages in this. If we are going to live in victory, we're going to have to know the way. We're going to have to know how to get there. And so the title that I've given today's message is The Way to Victorious Living. The Way to Victorious Living. And what we're doing, obviously, is taking a break from our study in the Book of Romans for a while And we're looking at some selected passages in Joshua. And the theme of the book of Joshua is really all about victory. It's about conquest. It is Joshua leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land and and setting up their inheritance in the land of Palestine that God had promised to them. And they they continually win their battles and God gives great victory. And it's going to be an awesome study. And so I hope you're ready. All ready? All ready? Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. That is our prayer and our desire, that as we begin to look at some of the th- passages that you have in the book of Joshua over the next month, that you'll kind of chart out for us our own little roadmap. We desire to know the way to victorious living. We desire, Lord, for you to be pleased with our lives. We we want to help others know you. We want to reproduce your life and the life of other people. We want to see more and more new churches started. We want you to get the glory that you deserve in this world. And if we would do that, we could look at our lives and say, wow, that is a success. That's a victory. That's a win. And that's what we want. So Lord, I pray you would speak to us this morning through your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, the first thing that we're going to see is God's preparation of his people. God is going to prepare His people to be able to position themselves for this victory, okay? And what we're really looking at is this roadmap to victorious living. It's going to be charted for us through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Y'all were worried about this conference is going long. We're covering four books and half a message here. Um, what we're going to see is kind of an Old Testament survey. We're going to do a very quick review Of some of the highlights of the events, mostly in the book of Exodus, and uh, it's all about the story of the nation of Israel. And the, the story of the nation of Israel, if you don't already know it, is critically important to our lives because Israel, corporately as a nation, is called in the scriptures, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, the Son of God. Israel as a corporate nation is called the Son of God. And if you were to do a comprehensive study of the Old Testament, you would find That there is not one, this might surprise you, there is not one individual human being in all of the Old Testament that is called a son of God. Did you know that? There's a few references to sons of God and in every case they're angels. But Israel as a nation is called the son of God until the Lord Jesus Christ shows up and he is the only begotten son of God and we by faith in him then individually as believers in Jesus Christ become sons of God of God and so that term is reserved for those of us who are born again in the Lord Jesus Christ and it is pictured for us by the corporate life of the nation of Israel now you read the Old Testament stories and you read about Israel and all of the things that they deal with and if you're like me you probably see some of the silly things they do and you're like well that was pretty dumb why'd they do that well a lot of the things they did are a lot of the things we do, okay? And God put it in there for a reason. Now it's an accurate historical account, but it all, it's also prophetic because it really gives us a picture of the life of any individual Christian in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to take the time and look in First Corinthians chapter ten. And the first 10 verses, it's a running commentary about Israel and Moses. And it talks about different events in the life of Israel. And it talks about how Moses took them through the Red Sea. And it calls that thing a baptism. And it talks about some of the experiences in the wilderness that they all ate the same spiritual meat. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. And it talks about the different sinful behaviors that they fell prey to when they were in the wilderness. That they lusted after things. And that they murmured after things. And they fornicated. And they had all these different sinful problems. And the Bible makes it very clear that we are to learn from their example of things that we should not do. And in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse number 11, it says, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So we're going to do a quick overview, starting in the book of Exodus. You say, why don't you start in the book of Genesis? Because this is the story of the nation of Israel. And Israel does not become a nation... Until the book of Exodus, and so that's where we start. And the first thing we see that's true of the nation of Israel as is we're in the book of Exodus is they begin in bondage to the world. They are slaves in Egypt, and they have been slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh for about 400 years. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of information, and I'm going to give it to you fairly quickly. And some of you that have studied the Bible can track with it really quickly. And some of you, it may be, wow, that's kind of blowing my hair back. I've never really thought about it that way. Let me just tell you, don't worry. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. It'll be okay, because as you hear these things little by little, let it just kind of flow through you and get what you can. It won't kill the overall uh, application for your life if you can't recount every little detail that I'm going to run through, but just keep in mind, okay, so the children of Israel, the Son of God, are now in bondage in Egypt as slaves. Egypt throughout the Scriptures is a picture of this world system, this evil world system. God says over and over and over again, don't go to Egypt. He tells Abraham, don't go to Egypt. When Joseph worked for Pharaoh and was was in Egypt and his family is reunited, he tells his family, when I die, don't leave my bones in Egypt. When Jesus Christ is a baby and Herod is going to kill all the babies because he's threatened by this king of the Jews that supposedly is born, they flee, Joseph and Mary flee with the baby Jesus to Egypt, but God won't leave them there because as soon as Herod's out of the way, he says, get my son out of Egypt. And our world, y'all, is to get out of Egypt. We are not to live our lives in bondage to this world. Pharaoh, for those of you that uh, may be aware, is one of only two men in all of the Bible that is referred to as a dragon. Pharaoh is referred to as a dragon, and so is Nebuchadnezzar. And as such is a picture and a type of the devil. Ezekiel 29 has that reference for you. And so you have the world system that is on course set by Pharaoh, a picture of the devil. And the son of God, Israel, is subject to that the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 20 says it this way for when ye were the servants of sin you were free from righteousness and and we'll get to Romans 6 7 and 8 and lay all that out when the time comes the point is this before our salvation before our new birth in Jesus Christ we had no choice but to be the servants of the system in which we lived that means that every unsaved man woman boy and girl that you have ever met before they received the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely by default a servant of the system in which we live. We have all been in that position. And that's the picture of Israel in Egypt. But what does God do in Exodus chapter 4? God provides a man who is the deliverer. His name is Moses. And God speaks specifically to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 that he is going to go and he is going to set his people free from the bondage that they have in Egypt. And Moses at that time was just a shepherd. He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ultimately battles with Pharaoh, and he demonstrates the mighty power of God, how? By doing miraculous things, and he brings forth all of these plagues that we read of in the book of Exodus, before Pharaoh and before Egypt. And so he starts out by the water is turned to blood, and then frogs come out all over the land, and then lice comes out all over the face of the land, and fly, these things are gross, all over the face of the land, all the cattle die, the people are infected, with boils from head to foot. It rains hail and the ground starts on fire. Locusts eat everything up and the entire land goes pitch black dark you can't see in front of your face. And yet through all of that, Pharaoh won't repent. And he won't relinquish relinquish control to Almighty God. What did Jesus Christ do when he showed up? He started overwhelming the world with miraculous deeds one after another to prove the mighty power of God. How did the nation of Israel and the Pharisees respond? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, who cares? And then the last plague is given, and it's in Exodus chapter 11, and God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn of everything in this land. And the firstborn, you got to understand, is the child who receives the inheritance. And so the death of the firstborn is literally the death of the inheritance, okay? And that's what is pictured in this story. Now, what we're going to see next, after being in bondage to the world, that Israel is saved by the blood. And that's Exodus chapter 12. And I want for you to look with me in Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to actually read some of that together. So let's read the first seven verses in Exodus chapter 12. Let me explain it to you quickly. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you, "'Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, "'saying, in the tenth day of this month "'they shall take to them every man a lamb, "'according to the house of their fathers, "'a lamb for an house. "'If the household be too little for the lamb, "'let him, let him and his neighbor take uh, next unto his house, "'take it according to the number of the souls. "'Every man, according to his eating, "'shall make your count for the lamb. "'Your lamb shall be without blemish, "'a male of the first year. "'You shall take it out of the sheep or from the goats, "'and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day "'of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And so what we have here is the institution of what the Jewish feast then becomes called the Passover feast. And the Passover feast is all about this story how God ultimately frees his people from the bondage of Pharaoh and, Egypt. and what we see is, is this is a procedure that will, if followed by the, the believing Israelites, will keep their firstborn children alive when God comes in and kills all of the other firstborn that do not follow this procedure. And what it is, is it is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when John the Baptist shows up and Jesus shows up as he's baptizing, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And so Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, and all of the Jews that would have heard that would have understood the typology, they would have understood the Passover that year after year after year after year after year they would have done, and they would have understood exactly what he was talking about. This is the picture that is given to us. And he specifically says, it's very interesting in your Bible, because he starts out and he says in verse number three that they are to take every man a lamb. And if you are going to be saved by the blood, you need to have a lamb because you cannot save yourselves. It is absolutely impossible. But your lamb cannot just be any lamb. It has to be the lamb, as it says in verse number four. If the household be too little for the lamb... You see, not just any old Savior will do. You have to have the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If a Lamb is not the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, then this isn't going to work for you. But it doesn't really matter that you understand that there needs to be a lamb, that you understand that Jesus is the lamb. You absolutely have to make it your lamb. And that's what we see as we come into verse number five. Your lamb shall be without blemish. You see, if you don't make the lamb personalized into your heart and life, then the blood will not apply to you. And when death comes to rob the inheritance, it will rob you as well. And you're supposed to take that blood, and you're supposed to put it on the doorposts, on the two side posts. And up on the upper post of the door. And so there's three splatters of blood. And the one in the middle is higher than the other two. A picture of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, crucified between two other thieves. He's in the middle and he's higher because he's deity. He's deity. And this is a picture of the crucifixion. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a picture of what God's doing in that. Let's look back at Exodus chapter number 12 and jump down a few verses starting in verse number 12. God says for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment for I am the Lord and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses wherein ye are and when I see the blood I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And that's what God is looking for in your lives today y'all. God is looking to see when ultimately that end comes and when that, that final breath is drawn and your physical life is no more the thing that God's looking for in your life is not that your good works outweigh your bad works he's not looking to see if you've just been a good guy or you've showed up at church or you've got your uh, perfect attendance pin or you've given some money or you've done good deeds and you've been a charitable person what God is looking for he sa- he wants to see when I see the blood then I'll pass over you he wants to see if the blood of the lamb your lamb is applied to your house, in your life, in in your heart. And if that's the case, then you too, like the nation of Israel, are now saved by the blood. It's a beautiful thing. So the Israelites, through this then, Pharaoh is exasperated with the whole deal, and he's like, just get out of here. I'm tired of messing with you, so yes, you're free. Please just go. And so now they're on their way out. They're still in Egypt, but they've got to leave. They start to leave, and the first big event that encounters them while they're leaving, Pharaoh says go, and then he comes to his senses and says, why did did I do that? Send the armies after them, and let's gather them back. Those are all our slaves. They're on their way out, and the nation of Israel is cornered. They have the Red Sea stopping them from progressing, and they have Pharaoh coming from behind them to kill them. What are they going to do? Well, the greatest miracle in all the Bible that's repeated more than any other miracle in the Bible is the parting of the Red Sea. So good that we made a bunch of movies about it. It's a cool miracle. So they pass through the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh and his chariots come after them. The sea closes in and kills all of them. The good guys make it. Hooray. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would have looked at that passage that we looked at, the Bible calls that event a baptism. And it's the first event that occurred to them right after this salvation by the blood. You know why? Because the first thing that you're supposed to do after you're saved by the blood of the lamb is to be baptized in water. That's what God wants you to do. It's not required in order for you to be saved. But if you intend to be obedient at all, then you will be baptized in water. And just think about it this way in the, in the context of our picture. What would have happened to the Israelites if they said, I ain't going in that water. I ain't going through the sea. Sorry. Well, they'd have been destroyed, right? Well, let's make the application to our lives now. What happens in your Christian life if you say, well, I received Jesus, that's good enough, I got my fire insurance, I'm not going in the water? Well, guess what's going to happen? Your spiritual effectiveness is going to be rendered ineffective. (laughs) You'll have no power in your life, you'll have no real testimony of God doing anything in your life. Why? Because you were not willing to be obedient in the very first and most simple thing. We get that out of the book of Exodus. You don't need the New Testament for that. That's their baptism. So they pass through the sea and they're on the other side and, the, and you've seen the movie and Charlton Heston and, and, and the waves and they crush and they crush Pharaoh and they're on the other side and they're singing, rejoicing and, and all that. But can you imagine now they're in the desert. They're in the Sinai desert and all the waters come crashing down and they're like, whoo And then they start looking around and they're like, now what do we do? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that old story about the, you know, you ever seen a dog chasing a car? You know, what, if he finally catches it, what's he going to do with it then? And so, here they are in the wilderness. Yay, we made it out. We made it through the sea. God killed Pharaoh. And there's some thorn shrubs and rocks. There. You know, ain't nobody planting a garden in the Sinai Desert, right? And so, how are they going to survive? Well, they're going to survive the same way we're going to survive. And that's by God miraculously providing for us every step of the way. And the next thing we see are, are their first lessons of faith. And so this story of the Red Sea was Exodus chapter 14. and Exodus chapter 15, immediately, they come to a pool of waters, but the, it's a place called Mara. And Mara literally means bitter, and the waters were bitter. But God miraculously turns the bitter waters sweet. And pictures for us, after our obedience to Christ, a new outlook in our lives. How the things that used to be bitter... Now are very sweet. And in Ephesians 4, verses 31 to 32, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice, and be you kind. See, that's sweet. One to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Exodus chapter 16, God miraculously provides the manna, the bread from heaven that falls down, providing their daily food. That's a picture of the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The very next chapter, Exodus chapter 17, we find that, okay, they're thirsty again, and there's nothing to drink. They're in the desert after all. And they come across a rock, and Moses prays, and God tells him to go ahead and take his stick and to smite the rock. And he smites the rock, and water comes gushing out. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because in John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39, Jesus says, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the rock, according to 1 Corinthians 10 again, is Christ. And Christ is smitten So that the waters of the Holy Spirit can flow freely upon all of us. Jesus Christ was crucified and then we receive the Holy Spirit of God. The later part of Exodus chapter 17 is that great battle where the nation of Israel is down in the valley fighting an enemy called Amalek. And Amalek is a wonderful picture of our flesh and the battle that we do with our flesh. And Joshua is leading the the armies of Israel to fight with Amalek. And Moses is up on the hill and he's got his staff in his hand. And as long as Moses would hold his hands in the air, the children of Israel would prevail in battle. But over time, Moses' hands were heavy and his hands would drop down. And as his hands would drop down, then Amalek would begin to win the battle. And he would hold his hands up and Israel would win and he'd drop his hands down and Amalek would win. And so Moses' brother Aaron, and another guy named Hur and they came over and they said man we got to keep Moses' hands up we've got to hold him up and so one held one arm and the other one held the other arm so Moses' arms stayed up in the air and Joshua and the Israelites won the battle at Amalek and what a wonderful picture it is of prayer and how we need to hold one another up in prayer y'all if you're not getting this when you read through the Old Testament start asking God to show you it is the most wonderful story in all the world And so the Bible says in Galatians 6, 2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And you know what? There's many, many other wonderful parallels in our life from all these stories that reveal the way that we travel in order to uh, achieve victory in our Christian lives. The goal that they were shooting for, where were they going? Where were they trying to achieve? Well, they wanted to get to the promised land. We call it the promised land because back in Genesis chapter 13, God gave an unconditional promise to Abraham, the father of the the Jewish nation, and it was an unconditional promise that he said to your seed, I will give a literal, physical land grant, and it's the land of Canaan, and that was a promise that was given to Abraham, and they knew all along that eventually they would occupy that land, and that was the goal. And maybe the most significant thing about this journey in the wilderness concerning their goal of getting to the promised land is that it took 40 years. Remember that? Do y'all remember why it took them 40 years? Of course, as they began to journey, they traveled up the Sinai Peninsula to the southern region of what we would understand to be Israel, and they came to a town called Kadesh Barnea. And in Kadesh Barnea, when they got there, they, they sent 12 men into Canaan, to spy out the land. And when they sent these 12 men into Canaan, they spied out the land and they said, wow, this is an awesome land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey and the fruit. They're gigantic and it is fruitful and it is abundant and it is wonderful. But they're giants in the land. There's enemies and they're huge and they were massive and we were as grasshoppers in their sight, they said. And so they came out, and 10 of the 12 men were fearful, and they gave a negative, fearful report to the congregation of Israel. Only two stood, Joshua and Caleb. And they said, Yeah, that's all true. They're big, but God's bigger. I say we go. I say we take it. But the 10 convinced the congregation of Israel to be fearful, and to murmur and complain, and to wish they could go back to Egypt. Why die we out here in the wilderness? Wouldn't it be better if we just go back and at least we were provided for? And because of their unbelief, God punished them. And he said, all of this generation from age 20 and upward will never make it into the promised land because of your unbelief. You will die in this wilderness because the congregation as a whole represents any individual Christian believer. <laughs> and this is their journey. So they had two that believed him, but it wasn't enough to turn the tide of the bulk of the Israelites. And so the nation of Israel feared, and that entire generation dies in the wilderness. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And they didn't do that. And so what happens is in our Christian lives, we see people that get some victory. They are baptized. They see God come through. God feeds them with food. God serves them his drink. The Holy Spirit does some work in their life, but they refuse to truly trust God and to go into an area that may be really uncertain because I'm telling you, the giants were real and they were big and there was a lot of them. It took faith. But people who are unwilling to trust God for the giants in their world, they end up wandering around and wandering around and wandering around until they die having never really realized all the promises that God has for their life. So what does that promised land really represent? Well, it represents spiritual maturity. A lot of people think the promised land represents heaven. We're on this journey, we cross the River Jordan, and eventually we make it to heaven. That's not what, this, that's not what it represents, not biblically. Uh, so it makes for good uh, old hymns that we sing, and it makes for good storytelling, maybe. But it's not good theology. It's not what the Bible says. And there's reasons why it doesn't represent heaven, and we're going to see those in just a second. Because what happens is, when they enter in, okay, they, they, when they enter in in the book of Joshua, okay, there's still some issues that they have to deal with. And those issues I've put for you in three categories in your notes. The first one is an issue of food. Because the manna ceases to be provided once they enter the promised land. In Joshua chapter five, it says very clearly that once they got across the Jordan River and they were there, it said God didn't give them the manna anymore. They didn't need it. In other words, when you reach spiritual maturity, there is no need anymore for somebody else to hand deliver the food of God's word to your tent flap every single morning of every single day. You don't need to have somebody in church or a Bible study or by reading a book or listening to something on tape. You don't need to have somebody hand deliver God's food for you. You are fully capable of going into the land and find your own food. It's abundant. It's everywhere, right? And in God's word, His food is abundant. It's everywhere. Can you go find your own? That's a mark of spiritual maturity. That's a mark of spiritual maturity, Uh, The second thing that they had to deal with is what I'm going to call to fight. You know what, because that land of Canaan still did have those enemies. I mean, those guys didn't go anywhere, right? Uh, No enemies in heaven, by the way. Uh, They have to fight and they have to win battles to drive out the inhabitants of the land to make a home for themselves. And in our Christian lives, we are going to have battles with the world, with our flesh, and with the devil. And we need to utterly drive them out from our lives if we are going to have victorious living in our lives. There are battles to be fought in in a life of spiritual maturity. That doesn't apply in heaven. The last issue is the issue to fill. In other words, their, their land grant inheritance was right there and it was waiting for them. All they had to do was win the battles, establish their homes, and then just start reproducing and allowing their tribes to grow and settle and make a home for themselves, they were literally to replenish or fill the land. And that's all God's ever asked us to do. The people who are spiritually mature take seriously what Jesus Christ calls our great commission and that is to reproduce after our kind, whether it be individuals and personal discipleship, churches and church reproduction, and taking it to the ends of the world. We are to fill this land with sons of God, people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who can enjoy eternal life. That's what he's given to us to do. But refusal to trust God, that just results in aimless wandering. That's what those people did on the other side of Jordan. Those are the people who died in the wilderness. They refused to trust that God would give them the victory, and they just wandered around and wandered around and wandered around until they all died off. The younger generation from 20 and under still considered to be children in the biblical uh, narrative of who qualifies as an adult or a child. They were okay and able to grow up and then ultimately pass on into the promised land. They represent the Christians who refuse to grow. Those people that die in the wilderness represent the people who have received Jesus Christ 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And for whatever reason, they are not willing to submit themselves to a biblical path for their growth. To demonstrate faith to feed themselves, to win their own spiritual battles, to reproduce the life of Christ through them into other people. They live their physical lives as Christians and die, having never really experienced the joy of spiritual maturity. That's what that generation represents. But the people that will believe God, they experience victory in ways that nobody up until that time has ever experienced before. Now very quickly, let me run something by you because here's a question that a lot of people ask and you may be curious. How long should that process take? And I don't know if you've heard this, but a lot of people like to say, and they will refer to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse number 2 and say that that journey could have been as short as 11 days because the Bible says that it was an 11-day journey, right, from Horeb unto Mount Seir in Kadesh Barnea where the spies went across. I don't, believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that that was the distance. I believe that if you went from point A to point B, it was an 11-day journey. God is right. But I, first off, Horeb is on the eastern side of Jordan where the Israelites ultimately crossed Jordan westward to enter into Palestine. Kadesh Barnea is on the southern side. That's the distance. It's not the distance from the Red Sea to Kadesh. It's not the distance from the Red Sea crossing to Horeb. This is just a distance. So I don't believe God intended for them to make it in 11 days. Why not? Well, because there's no way you're going to go from your Christian baptism immediately after salvation to spiritual maturity in 11 days. It ain't happening. Do you remember that when they were in the wilderness that God said, look, here's, what, here's how it's going to play out. We're going to walk together, and I'm going to give you a pillar of fire at night, which will give you warmth, because by the way, in the desert, it's really cold at night. It'll give you warmth by night and light. And during the daytime, I'm going to cover you with a pillar of a cloud, because it's really hot in the desert in the summertime, and so it's kind of my air conditioning, and it's going to show you where we need to go. And when my cloud or fire moves, you move, and when my cloud or my fire parks it for a while, you park it for a while, and you walk with me, and that's going to be the story. So how long should it take? 11 days? I don't think so. 40 years? Certainly not. Somewhere in between. Now... I'm guessing. I can't prove it. It's just my idea. I'm saying it should have taken three and a half years. Why three and a half years? Because that's the time Jesus Christ took with his disciples before he deemed them capable to leave them on their own to fulfill his great commission. That's enough time. It's enough time if you're not fooling around and you follow God and you believe him to get where you need to go. Could it be longer? Sure. Could it be shorter? I don't know as good as any, you know, it's kind of like this. If I'm wrong, you know, we won't know till we get to heaven, and when we get to heaven, you'll have to forgive me anyway, so what's the difference? So that's cool. Look, even Moses, do you remember? Moses wasn't even able to enter the land. Remember? Do you remember why Moses wasn't able to enter the land, right? Because they had that issue with the rock, and they were thirsty, and they're like, hey, we need water again, so Moses prays, and God says, hey, this time, I just want you to speak to the rock, and I'll give you water. But Moses, by the way, I I appreciate Moses. Moses, the Bible says, is the most meek man that ever was. And Moses was effectively the shepherd, the pastor, of a couple of million murmuring people. That's tough sledding, man. And Moses got hacked off at all their complaining. And God said, speak to the rock, but for whatever reason, you know, he wasn't paying attention and he whacked that rock again with that stick. And the water came out and the people got to drink, but God said, yeah, Moses, you blew it because the rock is Christ. And the first time the rock shows up, yes, he's going to be beaten and the Holy Spirit will be given. The second time Jesus comes back, ain't nobody beating him anymore. You blew the picture, Moses. When Jesus Christ comes back, you just speak to him. But God provided for his people, but the punishment for Moses was he wasn't even allowed to enter the land. And that's significant. Why? Because as we saw some weeks ago, when we talk about the law of God, it's typically referred to as the law of Moses. And the law alone, the word of God alone, all by itself, this is the law, God's commands by themselves, hear me, are not enough to get you to spiritual maturity. You need Joshua to take you to spiritual maturity and according to Acts chapter 7 and verse 45, the Holy Spirit cleverly replaces the name Joshua with the name Jesus, showing you that the name Joshua in Hebrew is literally the name Jesus, Yeshua. And Joshua represents the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to make it to spiritual maturity? There's only one way you're going to make it and that's why Jesus Christ leading you there. That's the only possible way. Man, all this stuff out of the Old Testament All this stuff that is so ridiculously applicable to our lives. The way to victorious living is led by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said in John 14, I am the way. Right? We need to follow the way. That's what it is. By the way, if you want to know more, we we cover this stuff in great detail in a couple of our MTT classes. So if that's interesting to you, I encourage you to sign up for that. Okay, so that's how the story goes that God is preparing His people. It's a journey. It's a path. It's a road map. It's a way that brings them up to this River Jordan to cross over into their inheritance. And so now we're going to see, in the second point, God's promises for His people. And we're finally in the book of Joshua. And what we're going to see is that Israel is about to realize their goal. They're about to enter the promised land. And it starts out with God talking to Joshua and reminding him of some things that they need to remember if they are going to have victorious living, if they are going to prosper in the promised land. Okay, And this is important, these promises. And we're only going to look at a few verses. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse number 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. "...that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not, not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest." And so in these verses of Scripture, God gives Joshua three promises. Joshua is to be reminded, first off, of God's presence. It says, I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now, if you went back and we're getting the running narrative in in Deuteronomy chapter 31, God said the same thing to Moses. Moses repeated the same thing to Joshua and all the congregation of Israel. And here God reminds Joshua about what Moses had just told him. He confirms this promise. And this phrase, that I will not fail thee or forsake thee, is repeated in several places In the scripture. And I gave you a couple of examples. One's in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse number 20, where King David is on his last days of his physical life and he is handing over the the control of the kingdom to his son Solomon. And he gives Solomon the charge to build the temple. For God in Jerusalem and with this big task that David had prepared but Solomon was going to carry out he tells him hey God will be with you he will not fail you he will not forsake you in other words continue to do this work take it to its full completion in other words don't quit because God is with you Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5, we see the same phrase. And when we see it in Hebrews 13, 5, it talks about our lives being without covetousness, that we are to be content with such things as God has provided for us. And he says, for I'll not fail thee or forsake thee. And the whole idea is this. We refer to not fail thee or forsake thee, thinking about eternal security. We've received Christ. He'll never leave us. We're eternally secure. That's true, but that's not the context of Hebrews 13, 5. The context of Hebrews 13, 5 is God will provide he is with you he's not going anywhere there's no reason for you to freak out just because you have limited resources around you I will provide for you do not be covetous do not worry about these things I am here that's what he's saying God's presence is so critically important if we are if we have to recognize that if we are going to be victorious so how does that play out? Well, real, just realize that no matter what your circumstances of life are, that God is with you. And whether you're like Joshua and you're about to go in and battle a bunch of enemies, whether you are like Solomon and you have some huge task to complete, whether you are like the Hebrews and you just have limited resources and you're not sure how it's all going to play out, God is with you. He says in Romans 8 and verse 31, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God's presence is such a wonderful promise. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. He's ever-present, He cares greatly, and He provides. Listen, y'all. Victory in your Christian life is available Quit worrying about stuff. Walk in faith. Trust him. And watch him do amazing things. Listen, Joshua's entering a land that literally had huge armies of huge men, giants. That was a serious deal. And God says, I'll be with you. Don't worry. I'll be with you. I'm not going anywhere. And in verse 9, he says, For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. That's an awesome promise. The next thing he had to be reminded of is God's power, verses 6 and 7, where he says a couple of times over, Be strong and of a good courage. Be thou strong and very courageous. By the way, this portion is often frequently, frequently quoted together with, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee, and be strong and of a good courage. They kind of go together because God's presence ultimately brings courage. God's power, as we're going to see. These giants that were in front of Joshua, certainly in his own strength, he wasn't going to be able to defeat them, but God never asks us to be strong in ourselves. Because the way to victorious living comes through battles, spiritual battles. And our strength is the strength of our flesh. And that's never good enough. You could never accomplish God's will in the strength of your own flesh, because Galatians tells us that the flesh wars against the spirit. And the spirit wars against the flesh. What we need is God's strength. And that is made very clear for us in Ephesians chapter 6 in the spiritual warfare. Where it says in verses 10 to 12, "...finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." And again, in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, as Paul is praying through this issue, he's got this thorn in the flesh. He's got some physical infirmity. He's praying that God would take it away so that he could be a more effective minister. And his answer finally comes. He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, Paul says, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So in order to appropriate God's strength in our daily lives, we need to be courageous. We need to have courage. We need to not be fearful. Proverbs 29 and 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. I pulled up a quote this week that I thought was interesting. It says, Courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. That quote is attributed to Nelson Mandela. That's cool. I kind of like the way God says it a little better. First Chronicles 19.13. I love First Chronicles 19.13, where God says this. Be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God, and let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. In other words, victory is available, and quit worrying about what might happen and just go for it. Let's just trust him and let's be courageous and let's behave ourselves valiantly for God, for God's people, and for God's conquest. And if we will behave ourselves in faith, valiantly, courageously, not that there aren't real fears, there really are, not that there aren't real obstacles, of course, but we will just go for it and leave the results up to God. If God chooses to give us great, victorious, fruitful, obvious results, that's awesome. And if he chooses not to, so what? It's like the three Hebrew boys together with Daniel, right? And they're saying, won't you bow down to the king? And say, said, we're not going to bow down. And they said, our God is able to deliver us. You throw us in that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not bowing down to your idols. We're not doing it. Let's behave ourselves valiantly. Let's have courage and let's go for it. And let's leave the results up to God. Let him do whatever he sees fit. There's so few people that do that anymore. I'm guessing he'll use you. I'm guessing he'll show you some victory. You'll see God come through in ways you've never seen before. It's available. By the way, who is it that's doing all the work anyway? It's God, right? Second Timothy 1.7. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of what? Power. And of love. And of a sound mind. Okay, lastly, Joshua is reminded of God's prosperity. It says in verses 8 and 9, For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. That's awesome. God promises us a successful life. But what kind of success is he really talking about? Earthly success? Wealth, power, fame, prestige, security? See, all those things are relative. They all kind of depend on your point of view. When we look at that stuff engaged gauge success, we really... Are looking at a moving target I mean it kind of depends on who you are if we were to consider an example of two different people one is a fireman and the other one is a pyromaniac and there becomes this raging fire that gets out of control one would say that was a great success and the other would say that was a huge failure and then you look at the opposite scenario where the fire is put out quickly and totally under control then now the fireman says that's a great success Or the pyromaniac says, no, that's a failure. You see, our success in God's eyes is not only not necessarily material, it's also not relative. It's absolute. And that's what he tries to communicate to us in this passage of Scripture. It's found in a way, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. It is the way, it is a path, it is a journey, it is a roadmap to continual living. It's a way of life. It's, the, it's not just some event that takes place in your life. So true success is associated with our interaction with God's Word because that's the focus of these verses. It says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. The book of the law not departing out of your mouth is not a reference to us constantly speaking God's word. That might be what you would think, but that's not the inference. It goes on to better describe it as, but thou shalt meditate on it. And so the illustration that we use when we teach this passage of Scripture in our MTT classes is like that of a cow who chews up the grass and swallows it and then brings it back up again and chews it some more and then swallows it. And then brings it back up again and chews it some more and then swallows it. Enjoy your lunch, by the way. Brings it back up again. <laughs> Chewing the cud is over and over and over again just working it through in order. Why does the cow do that? In order to extract the maximum amount of nutrition available from that food. And what, it's exactly what God wants us to do with His Word. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. It should constantly be brought back up and chewed upon and brought back up and just thought upon and meditated upon until you can extract the maximum amount of nutrition that is available for you. And there's a reason why you would do that, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. So God doesn't give you the beautiful truths of His Word Just for the sake of being a smart guy, he gives it to you so that you can obey him and you can glorify him. James chapter 1 and verse 22, the very simple verse, I could have given you many, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you're only a hearer of the word, you continually take it in, you hear it, you know a lot of stuff, but you don't ever really do it. God says, you know what, you're deceiving your own self. If you think you're spiritually mature because you can quote verses, but you don't ever apply them, you don't ever lead people to the Lord, you don't ever uh, participate in the activities of the church, you don't ever encourage others, you don't weep when they weep, you don't rejoice when they rejoice, you're not a part of the, the dynamic of this body, you're not a continual learner, you're not a soul winner, you're not effective, you're not applying yourself, I don't care how much you know, you are deceiving yourself if you think you're spiritually mature. It's just not true. It just doesn't work that way. And I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I have to tell you the truth. That is how it works. The successful or prosperous life, by the way, Joshua 1.9, it's the only verse in all the Bible where the word success is ever found. It's a life that God desires for us and it's found by living our lives regularly and consistently in his way. Meditating on his word, fully comprehending it and actually obeying what we've learned. Let's go to the end of Joshua chapter 1, and we're done. Last three verses. Verse 16. Here's the response of the people after all that. They answered Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us we will do, and whithersoever thou sendest us we will go. According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee, as he was with Moses." whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. And so I guess our last point of application is just will you obey all that God commands you? Will you go wherever he sends you? Because victorious living is available to you today. It really is. It requires faith in God as it's revealed by his word. And the decision is ours. It's just that simple. So let's pray together and give him the opportunity to do that. Will you pray with me? Let's bow our heads.